one thing is as we as we do get started as as we as we wait for more people to come in um we have christmas sharing coming up and some of you uh, may already know about this and have as much information or more information um but i uh, i was talking to carol uh, a little bit today about christmas sharing and christmas sharing is actually going to take place this year on saturday december 12th and it will be in the morning hours and because of uh covid and, and the things that are going on they're hoping to get more volunteers uh, they, they they would like a lot of volunteers and it looks like on november 1st there will be a way to sign up to volunteer online. So be looking at Life Together for advertisements that will be coming out for Christmas sharing. And it will take place in our parking lot. We have a, a great parking lot. So um, we'll have drive up. And what they're, what they're asking because of everything that's going on with the virus, they're asking for donations. And then the, our donations come from the, uh, I believe, the Northern Illinois Food Bank. Uh, is that right, Carol? Does that sound right? Um, sort of. The food comes from Northern Illinois Food Bank. The cost of that has already been covered. Okay. The cost We're looking for our donations. We'd like to give each family at least a $50 gift card. Okay. And we're expecting up to 400 families at St. John. Wow, that's a lot of families. That's a lot of money. A lot of money. But if you think of it in terms of our congregation, normal years will go out and buy brand new things to fulfill special requests. They will go out and buy food, new coats, a lot of other new things. So if you think in terms of, well, I used to spend this much money for, let's say, new coats, we'll just take the money this year because we can't do anything else. Yeah, very good. So thank you for that, Carol. For You're that welcome. So anyway, uh, Christmas sharing will take place. And uh, if you'd like to help out with donations for those gift cards or if you'd like to volunteer uh, be looking uh, there at about uh, November 1st. So um, that will be great. We'll be really helpful this year for, for many families, for over 400 families. So that's a very needful thing. Um, and then we also continue to have um, our Methesis studies, which are the Sunday schools that are happening during the week. And Pastor Nelson's doing that. And high school catechumenate continues on Sundays, and then uh, the catechumenate with Pastor Nelson is also taking place. So we're still doing some things and and moving forward as as the year continues. So it's nice to have you all with us today. Uh, please take a look in the chat. Uh, the chat box is at the bottom of your Zoom screen. And if you click that and it opens up, you can see the Zoom study handout and then something from Second Peter 1 if we get to it, then my, my email address. So with uh, that, uh, tomorrow is St. James uh, 
of Jerusalem, brother of Jesus and martyr day in the church year. So I thought tonight I would begin by praying the collect for that. So let us pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, shepherd of your people, you raised up James the Just, brother of our Lord, to lead and guide your church. Grant that we may follow his example of prayer and reconciliation and be strengthened by the witness of his death. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Okay, so tonight we are going to continue to talk about uh, procreptics and what that is. And at the top of the handout, I have, have procreptics and what it is. And, you know, the basic definition is that it is to promote a particular course of action or to persuade. And just as a reminder, if, if you're new to this course, um, procreptics is a form of apologetics. It differs a little bit from modern apologetics. We, uh, we often, when we think of apologetics, we think of evidential apologetics. And that is more, I liken it to as an analogy, like a tennis match where one person has information and on the other side of the net, somebody else, the other player has information and they volley back and forth point for point. And then somebody drives home the argument and converts the other one. Um, Protreptics is a little different. Um, evidential apologetics tends to be a defensive position, whereas protreptics is seen more as an offense um, as opposed to a defense. And protreptics was done uh, even before the, the guy that I spent a lot of time researching and thinking about is Clement of Alexandria. He did protreptics in his context. And he learned that, a good amount of that, from the Greek philosophers. Because, for example, Plato and Aristotle, they used protreptics. They, some of their literature were, uh, were, are considered protreptic pieces of literature. So, um, it has it has a a, a rich history uh, and and a, a rich use, but what it is is it's a persuasion of love. It is uh, an attempt to turn someone towards a higher art of living. Uh, Protreptics does a lot of listening, and so that's a very important component to this, and. So, you know, I see a question I'll answer real quickly from Mike. Uh, is it accurate to say that protreptics appeals more to emotion than logic? Um, so with protreptics, there is logos, pathos, and ethos. So logos would be the word. Pathos would be the passions. You know, you address, address the emotions or, you know, the things of the heart. Um, and then ethos would be the moral character of the speaker. So the way one lives is important. And, and the appeal with protreptics is to address the, the needs of the heart, the things of the heart, um, not just the intellect. So um, 
it's a little more of kind of a holistic or a kind of a, yeah, I guess kind of a holistic approach uh, that encompasses uh, many different things. And if you think of, so to, this course is the art of witness. So we're looking at biblical accounts, considering anthropology, what's going on in our culture today, and how do we, how do we share the love of Christ with people who maybe do not know it and have never heard it? And so when you think about our culture today, we live in a culture that is a marketplace of ideas. Uh, there are so many different ideologies out there. There are so many philosophies. Uh, there are so many approaches to life and what is truth. And when you think about postmodernism, postmodernism refutes truth. It denies an absolute truth and says that truth is relative. And so we have all of those things going on in the culture around us. And if you think about just people's lives, so much of what people do um, are based on subconscious beliefs or maybe things that they a person couldn't even identify completely, but it things that they have experienced shape their habits and it forms a belief system and it can be the environment around us. In fact, it is most often the environment around us and habits can be deliberate, but habits often spring out of what we think of ourselves and how we're taught. So there's a lot to this with habits and when we think about our lives, we think about our lives of faith. We believe in a transcendence, you know, God transcends um, and truth transcends. But much of our culture, so much of secular humanism is caught in what we would call, what anthropologists would call the imminent frame. And the imminent frame is that there's nothing outside of me or there's nothing outside of the world or the earth. There's only what is right here. And, and often a secular humanist looks at the world and says, the only true reality is what is here within me and my, and my, my environment. And we know differently as Christians that, there is a God of heaven who comes down into this earth and we have a providential God who is always at work in creation and in our lives. And then we look in terms of the church's sacraments and the word of God. And we know that, you know, Jesus comes specifically to us through word and sacrament. So heaven comes down to earth, but we live in this world and so we are not immune to some of the secular humanist ideologies. Like all, I think all of us have a, a splash of modernism in us. And then we also have a splash of postmodernism in us. And 
to what degree those things are inside of you or your thinking um, will vary from person to person. I think younger people tend to be more postmodern a lot of the times, but they can also shift into modern black and white uh, conclusions. So with us, even as Christians, because we live and spend so much time out in the public square and, and in the in the world, secular humanism does does have an effect on us to one degree or another, and we have a bit of this imminent frame within us too, where we tend to focus on the realities that are within us, and we have a difficult time seeing how God can work in our lives on a daily basis. How does he, what is He doing on you know as as we live? So one of the things though that Christianity brings and there is a yearning and Christian anthropologists talk about this that we yearn for enchantment, um, an enchanted world, a world where the divine enters our lives and echoes and brings meaning and change. And there's, there's a, a Roman Catholic philosopher by the name of Charles Taylor. And he says that uh, there's a big uh, move among the young, a movement among the young today that they want to be stained by the holy. They don't just want intellectual precepts, but they, they really want holy things to like be tattooed on them, their identities. They want, they want holiness to penetrate their lives. And, and I would guess that's what we want, right? We want, when we come to divine service, we want holiness to penetrate us and our lives and dispel darkness and eradicate our sins so that we then can experience the life that Christ has given to us. So there's a lot of that going on and that's part of what protreptics aims for or aims at is when we talk to people, there is a yearning, even if people may deny it at first, there is a yearning for goodness, holiness, and a life that is, is filled with purpose and, and deep meaning. So um, that leads me then to consider th there's three aspects to the Christian faith and it's on the handout on page one. You can take a look kind of just in the, to the top of the middle of the page. There's theology, there's liturgy, and then there's eschesis. And eschesis is a Greek term, but asceticism comes from eschesis and it really means practice. We think about it in often in terms of Roman Catholic renunciations, like renouncing food or, um, you know, anything of the flesh, but it has a broader meaning to it. Um, it is used in the Greek New Testament as exercise, but it's training. It's um, how, how we, tr we train for an end or we practice and eschesis is how we practice our faith and how we live. 
And so th these three are often at, should be at work in the church's life. So liturgy without theology and ascesis becomes simply like a relic, um, a performance, something that people watch, something from days gone by that people watch. If there's no theology or practice to it, um, you know, prayer, you know, would be a practice kind of a thing. Um, eschesis or the asceticism and the practice of the faith without theology and liturgy will become a philosophical training ground. And we see that a lot in our culture today, actually. But then theology without liturgy and eschesis becomes simply an academic affair. It becomes a classroom exercise. And that is also something that is often seen in greater Christendom. And so the idea, and this is uh, very much kind of an early church and early Christianity kind of a perspective, patristics, we call it, that these three things are often at work together and, and need to be. And they help strengthen the other. Now, when you think about this, and so this gets to the, so secular ideologies. I put one example that's kind of at the forefront in our culture right now on the, on the news and, um, and all around. Secular is, secularism has an escasis or practice. And the, the example I give on, on the handout is Black Lives Matter because it's such a, such a prominent picture for us right now. If you think about Black Lives Matter, it has a practice. And that practice is born out of uh, pain and struggle. Practices are formed out of situations and they form identities. And if you look at what's going on among Black Lives Matter, George Floyd murals, I just saw this on uh, on the news down in my down by my old hometown, uh, down in Bloomington Normal, not too far where I'm from, uh, there was a George Floyd mural that was put up and there was a lot of discussion. It was in the news. And murals like those are like icons. And those who have fought hard for the, for the cause of minorities are the movement saints. And the slogans such as say their names are like litanies. They have a philosophy and on the news, we often hear their creeds and we see their practices. So, you know, that's just literally just one example. Like I think back a little, a little of a couple of decades ago, really, you know, and you think about the hippie movement, the hippie movement was the same way. You know, you think about Woodstock was a, a foundational uh, event that, that had a big effect on, uh, the, the hippie movement. Uh, they had slogans like make love, not war. Um, then we saw music as a, a, an integral component to the hippie movement itself. And uh, much of the music was political and had creedal ideas, creedal statements in those things. And you think about like the Grateful Dead, for example, you know, they had their own sort of cultural liturgies like um i i am one that has gone to a lot of concerts in my life and 
uh, I, I went to, uh, well, it was like the first Grateful Dead concert that I went to, um, they had screens and uh, they put up on the screens all these, uh, all these loggers and tree cutters cutting down all these big, big trees. And the whole stadium started hissing and it freaked me out. I was trying to figure out what was going on. And it was, that was like a cultural liturgy where they saw uh, the destruction of, of the environment taking place on the video screens. And so the reaction was to hiss, you know, um, that's a cultural reaction. And then you looked at even the way people dressed, there were tie dyes there. Uh, the first time I ever saw Birkenstocks were uh, on the feet of deadheads, you know, um, it had its own identity. Um, and, and so you see, even in these secular ideologies or philosophies, you see practice, you see creeds, um, you see some form of liturgy or movement. And so protreptics takes a look at these kinds of things and, and then looks for opportunities to engage in, in meaningful conversation. There's, as I said, a lot of deep listening with protreptics so that you do a lot of question asking, like you'd ask the hippie. So what's, import, what's important to you? You know, and uh, a hippie back in the day might have uh, referenced the, the Kent State shootings and the people that died that day and um, and then move on and talk about um, inequality or injustice and um, the need for peace and those kinds of things. And so you look for these opportunities to see like what's in the heart, you know, what is that, what is that hippie uh, yearning for, you know, what is there? And then, so what is, what do they love? What do they desire? Um, what do they seek? And then uh, eventually through conversation and relationship, you, you bring them to Jesus and you see that love peace, um, you know, the deep yearnings of the heart and the soul are, are answered by Jesus in a way that nothing else could answer those yearnings. So, so the idea is to help a person see that the virtues and the things of Christ deliver what they seek, whereas the things, the way they seek those things in the world cannot ultimately achieve the desired and the goal. So that's something to all of that. Um, so when we think about this, then Christianity has its virtues defined by Jesus. And this is where we're unique. You know, the lives that we live, uh, our identities are formed by Christ and by his cross. And so we, you know, we talk about the charisma of Christ and that's the cross, um, the preaching of the cross, the preaching of resurrection, the preaching of the forgiveness of sins and new creation, 
those kinds of things. And that Jesus, uh, through the gift of the Holy Spirit, then begins to bring the new life into our lives. And so you can take a look at chapter page two. And uh, here I am again, I've got like 20 minutes to go through uh, a wonderful text. So um, if you have your Bible, you can open up to John chapter four, John's gospel. And now tonight, I'm not sure how I'm ever going to get through this. I, uh, I got to, I got to talking and rolling. And so now here I am, I'm, I'm, I'm racing the clock again, but um, you take a look at John chapter four. And I know you, you know, this, you know, this account, this is Jesus and the woman of Samaria and Jesus comes and he's he's been journeying with his disciples and the disciples move on and go into a nearby town so that they can get some food and Jesus comes to the this well and it is the well of Jacob and he's thirsty and then here comes along a woman of Samaria and this woman uh, has something to draw water with, whereas Jesus doesn't. And then begins this exchange, this conversation. And it's a little tense and, and uncomfortable at first because she's a Samaritan and he is of Jewish background. He's a Jew. And she's not sure why he's talking to her and and yet he he begins to turn the the question and the conversation back around and he wants water and she's not really willing to give it to him at first and so she questions him about it and he says then if you knew the gift of god and who it is that is saying to you give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So here is now this great paradox. And this, this kind of, the whole notion of paradox is one of the things that is a struggle for people outside the church. You have Jesus and you have the promises of Christ and Jesus comes with love and mercy and forgiveness and joy and renewal and hope and all all that is good and yet then people look at the world and they see all that is bad and so there's always there's often this paradox that exists between Christ the church and Christians on the one hand and people outside of the church on the other and so how do we bridge this paradox so the paradox is alive here he wants to drink water she hesitates, and then he says, hey, I've got living water, and now she's really confused, and there's some really good background to all of this, like, why does Jesus spend time with this, this Samaritan woman? In fact, we see this often in the Gospels. Jesus will come with his gifts, and the Jewish people will move on or reject it and stay away and then it's the Samaritan that usually gets the greater blessing. But on the handout, you can see there's some really good history because what happened with 
the Samaritans was uh, Sargon II of Assyria, king of Assyria. Um, the Assyrians had gone in uh, to conquer Israel and and they destroyed Samaria. And they practiced cultural genocide, which, and Sargon II does this. What he does is he goes in and he takes like 27,000 um, Sumerians and he takes them out of their homeland and scatters them abroad among other nations. And then what he does is he plants people of other nations in to that region of Samaria. And the idea is to destroy the national unity and the cultural identity of those people. And, and he was successful. And so as a result, make a long story short, the Jewish people, the people down there in Jerusalem, they, they looked at the Samaritans as um, half-breeds or, you know, people that were not worthy. Um, they looked at them in a very negative light. And, and so this is the context that is going on in the gospel. And the Samaritans, as a result, had mixed religious practices and so they were they were sort of in this marketplace of ideas sort of idea because there were so many different kinds of people they had all these different practices and they were often bringing them together and forging their own practices and so the Jewish people saw that as a very negative kind of a thing so here you have this Samaritan woman and you have Jesus. And so if you look at the handout, there's some great Old Testament stuff in here in this handout, by the way, that, that points out some of these different aspects of the Samaritans and their mixed practices and things of that nature. Um, but if, if you look at page three, the text itself has some important points like Jacob's property, which it, he had given to his son, Joseph was right in that area. You have Jacob's well, Joseph's grave was nearby. So you have the patriarchal background all right there. And you have Jews not having dealings with Samaritans. You have this paradox going on. And so her Samaritan pride then is outraged by the suggestion that a Jew could produce flowing water at the place where Jacob had supposedly given them the well. And so as is often the case, the things we value can only go so far. So the woman, she hears him talk about this living water and how does she interpret it? Well, she still interprets it in terms of this world. She's like, Hey, if I could have the water that I never, I don't get thirsty on this earth anymore that would be great, you know, because I'm getting tired of walking back here all the time with my jars to fill up the water. And, you know, I'd love to be done with that. But Jesus is talking about heavenly, heavenly things. And this is so often what's going on in our conversations. People that we talk to who are out in the world, 
they're thinking about the imminent frame, just the things that are right here and now. We are bringing things heavenly. And that's, there's a, a bit of a struggle in that regard. So, as with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, she can't understand the heavenly nature. And that's one of the interesting things about John's gospel. You have Nicodemus who, you know, Jesus says you need to be born again or born from above of water and the spirit. And how does Nicodemus reply? How am I supposed to get back in my mother's womb again and be born again? That doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, And of course, so he doesn't get it. So now we're, and he was a Jewish teacher. Now we have a Samaritan. She doesn't get it, okay? So there's something going on here in John's gospel in this regard. So if you are talking to people who are outside the church and trying to bring the art of witness, you're in good company if you're talking to people and they don't understand the heavenly things. Um, So it's not just us. I mean, it's been happening for a long, long time. So how does Jesus address her misunderstanding? She's still thinking about, hey, I don't want to be thirsty as I walk these dusty paths. So what does Jesus do? He turns it and he starts to talk about her marriage or the lack of marriage. And this is where he talks in John chapter four, verse 16. He says, go call your husband. And She says, let's see here. The woman says, I have no husband. And he says, you're right in saying I have no husband for you've had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. So what he's doing is he's breaking trans, this whole notion of trans or uh, imminence, right? And he's showing that he knows things that he ought not be able to know. And so now he breaks the barrier and now she's very curious, you know, it's, and this is one of those things where it's like the eyes of faith are starting to open and, and what's in, by, by the way, this is kind of interesting. Why five husbands, you know, there's always this idea of numbers in the Bible and The narrow limits of how the woman processes the world are broken through. She has five husbands. Her life represents the life of Samaria, like the land of Samaria, which was possessed by five different races. She's been connected to five different men. And now it all starts to come together. And so then she theorizes that he's a prophet. But see, this is not exactly comforting for her because she knows she the Samaritans had their temple on Mount Gerizim, and they said that was the holy temple, but then, as we know, then the Jewish temple is down in Jerusalem, and she thinks that it's all about, I have to go to go to a place, because prophets were considered a negative, in a sense, like, they were always just saying, repent, change your life, if not, here's judgment, okay, And the place that the prophet would always lead people would be to the temple or to the priest. And so I put here on the handout uh, that she brings up the temple because she's seeking a place of recourse for her sins. 
what altar must she go to? She expects Jesus to say Jerusalem, but he turns it on her. And so this is what happens in talking to people outside the church. They expect us to tell them they need to do something earthly, straighten up, stop making mistakes, be a good person. But they don't expect, they don't anticipate the gospel. And the gospel surprises. And this is precisely what Jesus does, is he surprises with the gospel. Neither, neither this temple nor that temple. In fact, he says in verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here. When the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth for the father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And so he's leading to the gospel and that's the key. And this is what we do in in our discourse with others is i remember back to my atheist days and i had no idea of what the gospel was like even if i had even heard of the term gospel which i don't even think i had i had no idea what it meant and so when i was sitting in the lutheran church listening to my wife's pastor's sermons at the time, we were engaged at that time, uh, and they were preaching the gospel. I had never heard that before in my life. Forgiveness, mercy, Jesus loves me and pulls me out of my darkness and cleanses me of my sins because he loves me. That's profound. And that is what surprises and and then of course what springs is the power of christ then through the gospel into our lives and then the, the the doctrine of sanctification where he reshapes our lives as he forgives as he cleanses he renews he changes he he's taking us and he's molding us shaping changing as we go to the eucharist as we continue to hear the gospel christ and the holy spirit are at work forming us and teaching us what love is and what mercy is and teaching us hope and these are the things that people outside the church they may have a desire for hope they may love and want to be loved but without Jesus and the gospel, their definitions will be a little different. And so that's one of the things you go for with procreptics. And so when you look at this text, she is not being required to become a Jewess. She is to cling to Jesus. And what I think is interesting about this gospel is that she starts out in kind of a defensive posture. But then after he 
tells her things that he should he ought not know and he basically tells her worship in spirit and truth he's here you know he's the holy one the, the savior and then she goes on he says i who speak to you am he but then she goes on later in the text and she starts to tell people. So if you look at verse 29, she goes off and she says, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And the people went on to the town and were coming to him. And then in verses 39 to 42, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony, he told me all that I ever did. So the heavenly comes crashing into their lives. That's transcendence. That's God incarnate breaking into the world, light dispelling darkness. And so when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days and many more believed because of his word. So the Holy One, the Savior, comes into their midst, God in their midst, love incarnate, mercy embodied, comes right into their lives and changes them. And this is what you, you think about divine service then and the way we practice, right? So our liturgy, our theology, and our escasis or our practice all come together in divine service. And we experience this very thing. We come to church, divine service, we confess our sins, we're absolved right away. We draw near to the gospels, to the scriptures, the sermon, the preaching of the word, the Holy Spirit working through the word. And then we're led, of course, we confess the creed, we say our prayers, we're led back to the altar where we receive the Eucharist and what is happening, but heaven is the whole divine service. Heaven is breaking into our lives, Christ breaking in. And so ultimately the art of witness is to draw, draw people to this, to experience it themselves, to hear, to listen, um, to hear the love of Christ that differs from any, anything else the world could, could give. And I see I am just about out of time. But when you take a look at this text, then the Samaritans recognize Jesus as the savior of the world. And this text itself is a great example of how our neighbors have preconceived notions based on their past and their background and their assumptions about us, because those things are always at work. The art of witness recognizes this, acknowledges pain and the world's bruises upon people. We talk about Jesus and the nature of the gospel and we, and we draw them close and we listen and we try to persuade through love. And so this account includes theology, liturgy, and escasis. And you know what? I'm not going to be able to get to the second Peter one thing. So maybe I'll I'll work I'll start with that next time
and and then we'll we'll continue then with the next with the next study. So let me let me stop there. And I see more like a habitus. And yeah, it is. It's you know this when you think about liturgy, theology, and ascesis or practice. It's a habitus. It defines who we are. It's where we live. It's it's defines us. It's it's who we become, what we become. Uh, and that all comes from Jesus. And, you know, when you understand the gospel and the love of Christ and the cross, what a comforting, wonderful habitus that is. What a comforting liturgy. What a comforting practice. Um, our practice springs out of the gospel. So let me see here. Does anybody have any any questions or comments? I did a pretty good job of getting through this handout this time. I kind of rolled, I guess. But there's there's a lot of good a lot of good biblical material in here in red, so you can you can take a look at some of the Old Testament stuff when you have a little bit of time if you want this week. I find the uh, the history fascinating. You know, when you think about the Samaritans and uh, the people of Israel and Jerusalem and Judah and how all that stuff happened and how those people came to be who they were and, you know, how that all dovetails into the Gospels. And, you know, notice Jesus. Jesus comes to all of them. He He doesn't pick nationality and say you have to be of a certain nationality, but he, he, um, he comes as the savior of the world, savior of the nations, and, um, and the gospel is for everyone, and uh, Christ died for the world, so what a wonderful thing we have to share, so that is the uh, portion of the art of witness with procreptics. So with that, then let's go ahead and close with the Lord's Prayer. And you're welcome to join me if you'd like. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, thanks for being with me tonight. I really appreciate uh, you coming and, and joining me uh, in this course. I have a note that Jesus is the woman's seventh suitor. Would it be possible that we approach someone who doesn't know Christ as a suitor? Hmm, that's a really good question. Um, yeah, I suppose so. Um, yeah, that's. The, I'll have to think about that one a little bit. That's a really good, um, a really good suggestion or thought. Um, thank you for that. Yeah, there's so much to to the numbers in the Bible. It's fascinating. We'll call it a night. Have a wonderful evening. I'll see you. Lord's peace to you.